But what I worry about is I worry about missing out on opportunities that I have because I got friends that will never get the chance to execute on opportunities because they didn't come home. And so for me to squander any moment, any second of my life is something that, that definitely, definitely haunts me. It haunts me every day and I won't let it happen. Welcome to the School of Greatness podcast. We've got Jocko in the house, my man. Thank you for coming here, being a part of this. Thanks for having me. We're talking a little bit about your Navy SEAL training and how you say it actually isn't that hard, isn't that big a deal. But uh, a lot of people seem to quit through the process. And you're saying you were giving me context that it's not as hard as going to war and actually being in that real life experience. Yeah, I don't want to say, I don't want to make it sound like it's not hard because it right. certainly is hard. And right. especially for someone like myself, I wasn't the best athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like an average high school athlete. And so physically, I had to, I had to go hard in order to, to pass all the evolutions. But yeah, I mean, compared to w- when you look at someone that was in the SEAL teams for a long time, mm-hmm. they're not sitting there harking back to the days of remember how hard this training was. Right. Now they're thinking about their deployments overseas and the things that they had to do. That's the real overseas. hard. That's the real hard stuff. I was with a SEAL uh, this weekend, his name's Chad, and he was saying that, I said, what was the day where most people quit? Because it's a, it's a self-eliminating process, right? Don't you quit yourself? Mm-hmm. They don't fire you from SEAL training, you I give would up. say 98% of the time, it's, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really high percentage of people that quit, but there's also people that fail. Really? So if you fail, when I went through, and things change a little bit, uh-huh. but when I went through, if you failed one run, they were watching you. If you failed another run, you would get moved back to the next, last, to the next class. And if you failed another one, you were out. So What do you mean a run? So a time, four-mile timed run. Gotcha. Four-mile timed run. Or, and that's one example, because you uh-huh. have a four-mile timed <clears throat> run, you have swims that are timed, mm-hmm. you have obstacle courses that are timed, and then you have other we call them evolutions, but you have underwater knot tying, life-saving. So life-saving is a good one because what it is is you have to go and rescue these SEAL instructors in the mm-hmm. water. So it's sort of like what a lifeguard would do, Sure. but it's pretty funny because they're trying to drown you. Like they're attacking you when right. you jump into- They're punching you, they're gra- They're yeah. trying to drag you down to the bottom of the, of the pool. So if you fail that once, then you'll get another try. If you fail it again, you'll get rolled to the last class, to the next class. And if you fail there, then you're out. But you could fail, if you failed one run, one swim, one obstacle course, then, then you, could, you could do that. Mm-hmm. And I did that. You know, I, I failed a run, I failed a swim, I failed an obstacle course. I don't, I don't know if I failed any, oh, I failed one water evolution called pool competency. I failed that one time. So mm-hmm. I was like, uh, a gray man in terms of, it was actually good. I wasn't great at anything, but I wasn't horrible at anything either. Yeah, you were consistent. So, so that was a good place to be. You could show up, that's great. Yeah. Uh, he told me, I don't know if this is too graphic, but I said, what was the hardest day where most people quit, when most people gave up in the six months of training? He said towards the end of training, it's not as difficult. Uh, they're not trying to break you every day as in the first, I guess, two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. But I said, what was the hardest day 
for most people. And he said, I was, he said, I was in shock because it was when they played a video over and over and they made us watch a video. I'm not sure if it was the same video that you had to watch at your time. He was, they didn't even have it. <clears throat> right, right. Through, so I don't know. He said there was, was a cool. video and this might be too graphic to talk about, but he said there was a video where, um, an enemy was using a knife to cut off the head of an American. Mm -hmm. And, he, and they made you watch it over and over again. And they said, this is very real. If you get captured, they'll probably do something like this. You know, they were trying to yeah. psychologically break you down or train you to be afraid if this is it. And he said for him, he got angry watching the video, whereas a lot of other people got afraid and they quit that day. Right afterwards, they all went and, not all of them, but a lot of them quit. How much of it was <clears throat> for you psychologically challenging versus physically challenging um, and were there those moments that made you angry or more excited to dive in? Or were there any moments that made you question being a SEAL? There was no, there was not any question for me. I knew what I wanted to do. I never thought about quitting at any mm, moment in really? time. I, you know, that's interesting that the video concept, we didn't, like I said, we didn't have, there wasn't videos like that that we could watch. But I think one, th I think that's actually good that they show that video because these days you can get kids that they see they, they see the SEAL teams and they think these guys are out, whatever, running around on the beach. And the fact of the matter is when you're in the SEAL teams, your, your mission and your job is to go and kill the enemy. And part of that job is putting yourself at risk with your friends of getting killed or wounded yourself. Right. So that's, that's good that they show them that because that's yeah. a good wake-up call. If you're going in the SEAL teams because you think you're going to you know, go to the bar and strut around with your chest out. Like right. that's not what the SEAL teams is. The SEAL teams is, is going to war. That's what we do. Was there ever a time you were truly afraid, whether it be in training or in war? Yeah. The biggest, the biggest amount of fear that I felt was absolutely without question. When I was on my last deployment to Ramadi and the, the feeling that you have, especially when you're in a leadership position is you're afraid that something's going to happen to one of your guys, one mm. of your guys is going to get wounded or killed. And so when you're, that's that's the fear that I felt, and part of that is, part of that is because some people, myself included, and this is not uncommon for guys to think it probably won't, nothing's going to happen to me, and so I had some of that for sure, but I, I also had the just that fear. There's nothing worse than thinking about one of your guys, one of your friends, one of your brothers getting wounded or killed, and yeah. that's that's what I was afraid of. Did you ever think anything would happen to you? Where you're like, maybe this is the mission where some random bullet hits me or... If I did think that, I didn't really care. You know, I think at some point you realize that there's a chance you can die and that's what you signed up for and that's what you dedicated your life to and that's what you believe in is that yeah. you're doing the right thing. So sure, you get the feeling, hey, today could be the day. Wow. But there's also the fact that there's nothing you can do to... There's nothing you can do to really control that. So you've... Beyond what you've already done, which is you've trained hard, you've prepared hard, you've, you've planned to the best of your ability, you've mitigated as much risk as you can through your operational planning process, through your standard operating procedures, and on top of all those things, you're at war. And so there's a chance that a bullet is gonna, be, is gonna have your name on it. And, and the fact of the matter is, bullets don't have your name on it. Bullets say to whom it may concern, and the bullet doesn't care who you are, they don't care how much training you've had, they don't care how well prepared you are, and if it's your day, it's your day. And so I think once you get to a point where you recognize and accept the fact that you could, you could die, 
then you can move past that. And f- I mean, I felt like that for a long time. You know, I felt really? like that for a long time that that was that was my job, and I didn't really care. So, so whether I thought about it on a daily basis or anything, I would say I didn't. Or just some part of the part of my world that I accepted. Right. You know, you might you might die. I mean, you you played football. You must have realized that you could get injured, right? Sure. And Break you, your neck. Or yeah, you, you can't be out there being worried about that. Right. And it might be in the back of your mind somewhere. But I don't know if you agree with this, but if that's what your primary concern is, your chances of that happening to you are probably greater than if you just say, put that in the back of your mind and go out and play aggressive ball. Same thing on the battlefield. You go out and you, you play aggressive. That's to me, increases your probability of survival, not so much for yourself, but more importantly for your, your troops. Yeah. What did you learn when you took on that leadership role? Because I'm assuming you weren't leading teams your first two years as a Navy SEAL, but then the more you were in the program, you were then leading groups of guys for many years, right? Yeah. What was the biggest challenge for you from going as a, I wanna say a follower, but as a team member into then transitioning into a leadership role of leading the team? What was the biggest challenge for you from that transition? From team member to player to player coach, let's say. Yeah, well you actually, you're like not wanting to me to call me a follower. Well, when you get into the SEAL teams and you're a new guy, you're absolutely following. Right. You got you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand the tactics. And so there's other people that have experience. You're listening to them. They're teaching you. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older and more experienced, and eventually I did move into leadership positions and became an officer in the SEAL teams. And then it was my time to step up and lead. And the amount of lessons that I learned are, are countless and that's what I ended up writing a bunch of right, books right, about. Right. I re- ended up writing a bunch of books about those leadership experiences that I had. The, the, right out of the gate, you know, when you ask me what I learned, you know, one of the most important things that I talk about all the time is you're, you're going to get humbled and you need to be humble. <laughs> right. Because you as don't a leader? Know every, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. As a leader, especially you step up into a leadership position. Do you know everything? No. No, you don't know absolutely everything. Not. If you act like you know everything, you're going to get eaten alive. Humbled quickly. You're going to get humbled. And, and not only that, but your, your troops are going to look at you and say, why are you tr- who do you think we are? Do you think we're stupid? So you're acting like you know everything. We actually know you don't know everything. <laughs> and you're acting that way. So their respect for you goes down. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just say, hey, look, I, I just got into this job. I'm going to do the best I can. I don't know everything. My mind is open. I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. And if you guys can help me out, I'd appreciate it. Well, everyone sees you as a humble person that's ready to listen and ready to learn and their respect for you actually goes up. So I'm not saying you can walk in and say, hey, I don't know anything. I'm ignorant. I haven't done any preparation. I haven't studied anything. I don't know anything about my job, but you can only learn so much from books and from from various documents, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually you gotta start doing it. So you gotta, that's what I learned. Number one, you gotta be humble. Yeah. How long, how long were you a, uh, a leader of the team of teams? So I was enlisted in the SEAL teams for my first eight years. Uh-huh. And then I got a commission and became a SEAL officer. Okay. And how many years were you an officer for? 12 years. 12 years. What, um, what was the most humbling experience you had as a leader in all 12 years? And was the 11th and 12th year easier than the first and second year as a team leader? So most humbling experience, there's, well, the most humbling experience you're going to experience on the battlefield is if you have your guys wounded or killed. Yeah. And when that happens, 
there's nothing that's going to be worse than that for right. you as a, for you as a person. Right. Cause you feel responsible. You feel like it was your job. It's not just, you feel responsible. You are responsible. Yeah. You are in charge. And yeah. so when someone gets wounded or killed, you, there's, if you're not shouldering that burden, then you're lying to yourself. Mm. So that's number one. The, the story that I wrote about in, in extreme ownership, the mm -hmm. opening chapter of extreme ownership yep. is there was a, a blue on blue, a fratricide, meaning friendly forces killing friendly forces. And that happened really? when I was on a mission. It was actually a group of my SEALs with some army soldiers and some Iraqi soldiers in a, in a position and in a, in, a, in a sniper position. And they got basically attacked by a friendly Iraqi element. And Your got, guys did. Yes, wow. got into a gunfight with them. One of, one of my guys killed an Iraqi soldier, wounded a couple more Iraqi soldiers. One of my guys got wounded. It was a nightmare because it's hard. You're, you're on the same side. You're on the same team. Yes, yes. So, Ooh. yeah, and I was the guy in charge. Wow. So, you want to talk about humbling? That's humbling. All these, you, you think you're so good. You think you've got tactics mastered and all that stuff. You think you're great at planning and all those things. And I, I wouldn't say that I thought that, but I definitely thought I was competent. And so, when that unfolded, it's like, oh, guess whose fault this is? It's my fault. Wow. Where do you go after that? How do you go back to a confident place of being able to lead people? Because you've got to have some confidence too. You can't just be, you know, concerned that something wrong is going to happen all yeah. the time, right? So how do, how do you transition back into a confident place? Number one, take ownership yeah. of what went wrong. Extreme ownership. Take extreme ownership yeah. of it, right? Because it's the same thing I just said. If that would have happened and I would have said, hey guys, that was my fault. It was his fault and his fault and his fault. People would have looked at me. They, they know the truth. The truth is I'm the guy in charge. So everyone's respect level for me would have gone down and their confidence in me would have gone down. Mm. But when I go in and say, hey guys, look, this is what went wrong. This is my fault because I'm the guy in charge and this is what we're going to do to fix it. Well, now everyone says, okay, well, he, he's taking ownership of the problem and he's actually got some good solutions to make sure this doesn't happen again. Their confidence and their respect for me goes up and we can move forward. Right. How often did you have to take extreme ownership? Every single day. Every day. Oh yeah, of course. Wow. Of course. The minute that you're blaming anyone else for things that are going wrong, the moment that you do that, think about what it does to you. Think about what it does to you. Mm -hmm. If I'm walking, if, I, if we go on a mission and something goes wrong and I go, that wasn't my fault. Well, what am I doing to fix it now? What am I doing? Right. I'm not doing anything. Nothing. Just blaming Be people. Because, yeah. because I don't think it's my fault. So I'm not going to change anything. Well, then we'll make that same mistake again. And then, I'll, then I'll say that wasn't my fault. Yeah. And we'll never, we'll never make any progress. Whereas if I say, hey, this was my fault, here's what I'm gonna do to fix it, then we fix the problem. And by the way, when I point my finger at you and I say, hey, you know, this was your fault, what's your reaction to that? Uh, defensiveness? Yeah, you're gonna get defensive. Yeah, of course. And then what are you gonna do? No, it wasn't, I'm blaming this person, that's person. Your finger they dropped else. the ball here, Jimmy did that, Johnny did this. Yeah. And, and what are they all gonna do? Pointing back to you. So now what do we end up with? We end up with no solutions. No, no one taking ownership of any of the problems. The problems never get solved. We never progress. So how many times did you take extreme ownership of something that technically wasn't your fault? There is no thing. There is no thing. There is no thing. So you'll take ownership of everything, even if it wasn't this directly. Is, this, is, this, is a, this is a question, a comment that I get from, from my consulting business, uh -huh. right? You know, we, we work with business leaders. Uh -huh. And someone will say, yeah, I get it, you know, but what should I do when it's really not my fault? But it is your fault. It's like, oh yeah, 
You, you, I, can, I have yet to have somebody stump me with a question when I say, no, if you're in charge of something and something goes wrong, it's your fault. It's all your responsibility. It's, it's all your responsibility. Because if I'm in charge of a platoon and one of the machine gunners that's four or five levels below me in the chain of command and is on a position that I'm not even at, right. and he shoots his machine gun in the wrong direction towards friendly forces, whose fault is that? It's your fault. Yes, it's my fault. I didn't train him well enough. Mm -hmm. I didn't make sure he understood his fields of fire, where he was allowed to shoot. I didn't make sure that he was being monitored correctly by his fire team leader to make sure that they all knew what was happening. And at the end of the line, if he's not competent and capable of doing his job, I, it's my fault that I let him be in that position. Right. So no matter what happens, it's my fault. So what do you tell uh, CEOs or leaders of big companies that have multiple lines you know, underneath them that don't have the time to train them personally, mm -hmm. but they have someone underneath them to train, who's training them, who's yeah. training them. How do you oh, coach oh, those it's, individuals? It's real easy. You know, <laughs> the guy says to me, hey, you know, we, we failed this project. And I said, oh, well, why do we fail that project? Oh, because of Bill, the, mm. the frontline manager. Oh, okay, mm. who's in charge of Bill? It's Mike. Oh, okay, who's in charge of Mike? Fred, who's in charge of Fred? The leader, the CEO, yeah. I am, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right, you're in charge yeah. of Fred. So that means you need to make sure that your intent is felt all the way down through the chain of command. How do we do that? That's leadership. This is why I have a consulting business because <laughs> this is what you have to do. Yeah. Because the larger a company gets, look, when I'm in charge of eight people, it's easier. Everybody, everybody knows what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I, can, I mean, I see him every day. I can sit in one room and talk to him all face to face. On the battlefield, you're in charge of a fire team. A fire team has four or five people in it. Even in combat, you can control four or five people. Eight people, you actually can't control anymore. Mm. In a firefight, you can't control eight people. That's why the Army, the Marine Corps, around the whole world, it's like four or five people in a fire team. That's what the base unit is. Wow. In the corporate world, you can handle a little bit more than that because there's no explosions happening. There's no gunfire. Yeah. So you can control eight people, ten people, something like that. That's kind of what the normal corporate structure breaks out as. But the bigger you get, the more you have to rely on those subordinate leaders to spread the word, to understand what the mission is, to understand what the end state is, to understand why they're doing what they're doing. That's what you have to do as a leader. And when you do that, there was plenty of missions that I went on where I was the ground force commander in charge of 30 or 40 SEALs or 100 wow. SEALs and Iraqi soldiers combined together. Plenty of operations like that. You know how many people I talked to? I would talk to three. Right. <laughs> I would talk to the two platoon commanders and the mobility commander. Yeah. And everybody, and then they would talk to their two or three people, and then their people would talk to their two or three people. So how do you get that message across to hundreds or thousands if that's in your organization? There's a, there's a bunch of different ways. So in a big organization, this is something that we come across. I mean, we work with companies. I think the biggest company we work with is 100, 167,000 employees. 167,000 employees global, right? So they're all over the place. So how do you get the message? Well, there's a bunch of things that you have to do. Number one, you have to make sure that your message is simple, clear, and concise, right? Mm. Every, you gotta, you gotta communicate in a way that even that frontline trooper can understand what you're talking about. Now you have to translate that 